Hello, and welcome to the first part of my podcast series. After this three-part podcast is all said and done, I hope to have provided you with some information that stands out and has a lasting effect. I'd like to first begin by talking about the renewable sources of energy that are most impactful to our immediate transition to clean energy, those sources being wind and solar, and I'd also like to talk about renewables such as hydroelectricity and wave and tidal. As we know, there is a huge amount of radiated energy from the sun that is always illuminating the earth. The trick is harvesting it, storing it, and then converting it to useful energy. The two types of solar energies come in forms of solar thermal and solar electric. Solar thermal being the form where we capture the sun's energy as heat, and solar electric being the form of converting sunlight into electricity for universal purposes. The biggest hesitation that comes with solar energy is how there are some regions of our country that deal with the four seasons. Yes, there are some regions more fit for certain types of alternative energies, but there is a reason I will be discussing not just one type of alternative, but many. The highest average sunshine in watts per meter squared is in locations near the equator, so that the midday sun is always high in the sky and the weather is dry so that there is little haze or cloud cover. Deserts near the equator are, deep, are ideal, and Honolulu is quite well off since it is the most far south in latitude of any place in the U.S., and the weather is generally clear. Most people are under the impression that Chicago does not hold any ideal circumstances for solar, but Chicago could potentially produce 62% of what Honolulu could. Within the lower 48 states, we think that the sun is being excellent in places like Phoenix that could produce 224 watts per meter squared, or Albuquerque with 207 watts per meter squared. But Chicago is not really all that much worse at about 72% of the sun in those places. The biggest exception would be Alaska, where there is high latitude and the cloudy weather are killers but the sunlight in most of the U.S. is really pretty usable for solar energy. This is an observation that many Americans would disagree with. At the moment, solar electric installations on houses are, more, are most common in southern locations in the United States where electricity is expensive, such as California. Florida has a lot of solar electric also, even though electricity is cheaper there, and installations in Michigan are becoming more and more common. Cost is also a big question for many Americans who would rather continue going with the flow of fossil fuels if that means they get to keep a little extra cash in their pockets. Today, for systems in the 10 kilowatt to 50 kilowatt range, total system cost, which includes wires and controllers, is approaching $1 per watt in peak power conditions. As electricity has become more expensive and the cost of good quality solar panels has come down, the period of time required for the installation to pay for itself in value of power produced has shortened considerably. Tax subsidies also help this. In Michigan now, the payback time without the effect of tax subsidies is something like 12 to 15 years. Once the homeowner's initial investment is recovered, the panels still work, with a slight reduction in capacity due to, due to age, and so the power generated is free of cost. Good panels should last 20 to 25 years in normal service, 
but after that, they may be down to about half of their initial capacity and should probably be, be replaced. A valid counter-argument for solar panel farms in regions of Phoenix, Arizona, or Albuquerque, New Mexico, is that when you have a large area of land capturing the sun's energy, all that energy has to be transported through wires. And when there is a lot of dangerous electricity running through those wires, there's potential for a lot of damage to be done. Critters could chew through wire, could chew through wires, get electrocuted, and their carcasses could create an impediment. When located in regions of high temperatures, mixing hot wires with high temperatures can easily result in overheating or fires. And when you transfer the, transport that energy longer distances, it only creates exponentially more risk the farther you go. These reasons do not mean that solar is a poor choice in alternative energy by any means. As technology continues to advance and more development of solar panels proceeds, the safer those large-scale those large-scale solar fields will be. As we drive past Parkview Avenue on Highway 131, we can see the large solar field that Western Michigan has developed, and I'd be very curious to know where that energy goes and if they have been able to profit off that installation. Continuing on to wind energy, there are also two types, offshore wind and onshore wind. Onshore wind turbines are most effective in the U.S. in the locations where the Rocky Mountains meet the Great Plains. Offshore wind can be split up into two categories, those being shallow offshore and deep offshore. At sea, winds are stronger and steadier than on land. So, offshore wind farms deliver higher power per unit area than onshore wind farms. Deep offshore wind farms are considered to have depths of about 25 to 50 meters, which can result in the need for much more building material, and I'll touch on that a little later. The wind always gets stronger if you climb higher, so larger wind turbines are built higher, and so having larger blades and having the center or hub higher as well, this requires a large cement foundation so that the thing doesn't blow over. And it also increases the construction cost because huge cranes are required, or sometimes heavy lift helicopters. For blades longer than 120 feet, they are harder to ship by road as it leads to an extremely long truck. And the global crude steel production in 2019 reached 1,869.9 million tons, which is a lot. But thinking back to the Second World War, the U.S. built 2,751 Liberty ships that contain 7,000 tons of steel each, which means about 19 million tons of steel for the United States alone. So technically building 60 million tons of wind turbines is not off the scale of achievability, but still very taxing on the labor and pockets. To provide a little bit of a counter-argument for wind energy as a whole, we know that wind turbines can be loud and noisy when they're located onshore and in your community. But I'd much rather deal with the turning of a wind turbine than the constant buzz of an air conditioner since our average global temperature increases if we continue to do nothing. We also know that wind turbines pose a threat to birds of prey, but to counter the counter argument, cars and traffic kill a greater amount of birds as well. Just another reason to ban cars, and then our emissions can go down too. Now, 
Moving on to hydroelectricity, the major components for hydro are the water flow and vertical drop. Niagara Falls is simply the best example for this type of alternative. The conditions are ideal. The good thing about Niagara is that the drop and water flow is 100% natural. Unfortunately, these conditions don't exist much of anywhere else, at least in the United States. Although damming rivers can be although damming rivers can allow hydro to work, most of the rivers that need damming are already dammed, so there's not much room for improvement. Rivers like the Mississippi are just too flat to have any hydroelectricity efforts be cost effective. But a country like Brazil is fortunate to have the world's long longest river running through so that they are able to generate a whopping 75% of their, of their electricity from hydroelectricity. A very impressive number for such a large country, but all in all, hydroelectricity might not be the best for the United States. Continuing on to wave and tidal energies, I'd like to point out that wave and tidal energy actually comes from two different sources. The tides and large ocean currents are driven by gravitational attraction from mostly the sun, partially the moon, and also the rotation of the earth. It is still energy from the sun, in a way, but it is unusual in that solar radiation is not the origin. Waves come from wind across the water, which is technically driven by solar radiation and evaporation from the oceans. This makes waves a third-hand energy meaning it comes from light and heat, to wind, and then to waves. Anyways, wave energy relies heavily on oceanic trade winds. Some locations in the U.S. are not ideal because these trade wind winds run parallel to the coast, like the East Coast and the Gulf Coast. But in the Northern Pacific region, the trades blow steadily from Japan eastward to the San Francisco area. New technologies are being explored to try to submerge what is essentially a small wind turbine underneath the water that will collect the wave's energy. Tidal power is once again based on flow, but unlike steady ocean currents, tidal, tidal flow reverses approximately every 11 hours. In Florida, conditions are not ideal because tides only average about one foot, but as you venture farther north to locations like Nova Scotia, tides can reach almost 40 feet. Those are ideal. The issue with tidal is that much like conventional river dams, structures for tidal energy are intrusive to the environment, and many can be very expensive to build. They do generate sizable amounts of energy, but depend strongly on local coastal conditions. There is no real opportunity for that in the U.S. because we don't have those right, those right conditions. Unfortunately, a little bit of this episode has been the doom and gloom that we in Environmental Science 115 get sick of, but I hope that this was really an informational session and you became a sponge and soaked it all up. Next time, you will be hearing more bad news as I plan to talk about how humans consume energy, but don't get discouraged. There is good news to come. Thank you for your time, and I'll see you next time.